Welcome to the Seahawks Forever podcast, hosted by longtime Northwest sports journalist Dan Viennes. News, reaction, and opinion. In-depth analysis on everything Seahawks. And now, here's your host, Dan Viennes. Welcome to another edition of Seahawks Forever. I am your host, Dan Viennes, and I'm joined today... First time in a few months, very special guest, Corbin Smith, host of Locked on Seahawks daily podcast, five days a week, and also writes for all Seahawks. And you hear him asking questions at the press conferences. He covers the team on a daily basis. Corbin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Deanne. Greatly appreciate it. So there's a lot going on in Seattle sports right now, man. You know, Mariners are just getting started. They're off to a slow start, but high expectations there. The Seattle Kraken just, just solidified their first ever playoff berth. Sounders are always doing well. Um, There's a lot of cool things going on, but yet it seems like the bulk of the focus of Seattle sports fandom right now is on the Seahawks and the draft that's coming up in just a little less than three weeks now. Uh, April 27th, the first round will commence down in Kansas City this year. It's the talk of the town. Everybody wants to know what the Seahawks are going to do with those 10 draft picks and and uh, especially that that first one at number five. We're going to talk about that. But I want to start with this because this is the first time you and I have had a chance to catch up on air in a little bit. I want to get some of your thoughts on the offseason so far. And I want to start with this. 13 months ago, when the Seahawks decided to trade Russell Wilson and move on from him, regardless of what we now know about how they thought Geno might be a solid uh, stopgap, we all assumed when that day happened that we're talking rebuild, right? And that the plan probably included a young quarterback, probably in this draft, and that this that there might be some pain. And then we saw what happened over the last 12 months because of how well Geno Smith played. Do you think, you're around the team on a daily basis, do you think they were surprised by what happened and that maybe as they head into this offseason, their plans have changed because maybe they're ahead of schedule. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And they've this new contract for Geno Smith does create a lot of flexibility for them. They have an easy out after this next year. If they want to go that route, there's another really good quarterback class coming in next year. Maybe that opens the door for them to trade down, trying to get a future first so that they have the ammo to go up and get that kid next year. Mm-hmm. They've opened up a lot of possibilities. But if you would have told John Schneider and Pete Carroll – 13 months ago, hey, you guys are going to finish with nine wins. You're going to make the playoffs. And Geno Smith is going to be a Pro Bowl quarterback that is worthy of a contract extension. I think that they probably would have batted an eye a little bit. And that's not to say they weren't confident. I think they were truly confident that Geno Smith could play solid quarterback for them. But I don't think they thought he was going to play at the level that he played at last year considering the youth around him, especially two rookie tackles protecting in front of him. So I do think that their plans have changed a little bit. Uh, at the same time, you know, you remember John Schneider last year, I think he was being fairly sincere when he said, like, we don't view this as a rebuild. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're going to be looking to compete. They weren't trying to tank last year, yeah. obviously, but they really found that perfect combination where they were chucking a bunch of rookies into the lineup. They're getting these young guys experience, letting the bullets fly a little bit. And 
then they also had a veteran quarterback and they were able to still win nine games and maybe could have won 10 or 11 if a few things would have gone the way they needed to. So, yeah, it ended up being a perfect storm for them and they didn't have to compromise the rebuild in getting to the postseason either. And that's a big key to me. Sometimes you see these teams that are in the middle, not sure what to do, and they end up making some decisions like not getting those young guys the reps they need. And it ends up setting them back. Seattle's in the opposite situation. They've got all these second-year players that are going to be really good. Yeah. And they got a couple of guys like Dariq Young that I think are going to have much bigger roles going into their sophomore seasons. And then you've got all these draft picks to work with to continue building this roster and a proven veteran quarterback that really knows how to run your system. And with where they're at now, um, because of that year that they just had and because of how well Gino played, it seems like their approach to this offseason when it comes to free agency anyway is let's win now. Let's let's try to add some impact players in free agency at a level that we frankly haven't seen since John Schneider and Pete Carroll have been calling the shots. They get out right away on day one and they they sign Draymond Jones to the big deal. They bring Jaron Reed back. And then the dual signings of Devin Bush and Julian Love before even bringing back Bobby Wagner. Those to me indicated a shift. And I, I was really struck by Schneider's comments that they brought both those guys in for visits at the same time. Didn't think they'd be able to get them thought that maybe, especially in regards to Julian Love, he might be out of their price range. He might have more of a market. But those guys came into town, and they both wanted to be part of what's happening here. And you discussed this on your show the other day about the culture that Pete Carroll has built here and how players want to play for him. How crucial is that to what we've seen over the last six weeks in player procurement? It's number one, two, and three on the list. I mean, Pete Carroll is still one of the biggest power brokers in the NFL from the perspective that players want to play for him. He is the ultimate players coach, incredible respected. And I just want to, I want to look at Julian Love's comments because we had a chance to yeah. talk to him for the first time a couple of days ago. And I'm telling you, Dan, and I'm sure you've listened to the interview. Mm-hmm. Every single question you could have asked him about the Super Mario Brothers movie, and he would have had an answer that would have been linked to Pete Carroll. Every single question had Pete Carroll involved in the response. And obviously that makes it clear that he was the number one reason that Julian Love wanted to be here. And and he's the architect of the culture. I mean, John Schneider's involved with that too, but Pete Carroll is the architect of the culture in Seattle that makes guys want to play here. And this is a team that won nine games when they weren't supposed to. And so they are an ascending franchise. They're trending upward. The NFC is wide open, especially when Aaron Rodgers, whenever it finally happens, gets traded to the New York Jets. I mean, this conference is wide open. If Seattle can make a few moves in the draft to get guys that can come in and be immediate playmakers with the moves they made in free agency, I mean, Players like Draymond Jones are looking at that thinking that's a team that is an ascending team, not the one I'm playing for right now. That's the ascending team. I'm going to go sign with them. And he just, and again, Draymond Jones talked about the culture and the people caring about the players. I mean, that all goes back to Pete Carroll and his ability to be able to mesh with all different types of guys. I mean, Julian Love is an X and O's guru. He loves the game of football. So of course, Pete Carroll took advantage of that. They started watching film, according to Love, five minutes into their meeting. Wow, That's the kind of guy that Pete Carroll is going to get super fired up about. At the same time, there have been players that maybe aren't as much into that kind of stuff, but he's going to find the buttons to push and they want to play for him. So again, he is one of the main power brokers in the league because guys want to play for him. And that's really helped this offseason for Seattle. 
Well, and I think one of the strong indicators of that too is, you know, some of the things that Bobby talked about this week and, and how, you know, there were a lot of people that thought that bridge might've gotten burned last year because of the, the way the whole thing went down when they released him and that he found out through social media and not directly through John and Pete. And a lot of people wanted to throw those guys under the bus and, and change the regime. And, and for Bobby to say, look, I care enough about those guys. And I know they care enough about me that, yeah, it wasn't ideal the way it went down, but the love is still there. This is where I want to be bar none. And, and he even went on to make the point that he's not the first, that there are a number of examples of guys that have left and come back. Jaron Reed, another example this year, he even name dropped. There was a moment there where Richard Sherman, there was almost a reunion. I thought that was an interesting part of his press conference the other day that nobody really picked up on, that he kind of dropped that nugget in there, that that almost happened. We've seen the Seahawks let players go test free agency and come back. I remember all the way back to Red Bryant and guys like that and Brandon Meebane and test their market and come back for another year. Um, before we get into the draft stuff, there are some holes on this roster still that, oh, yeah. I, that I don't think can completely be covered up with the draft. You don't want to rely too heavily on a draft class. And there are some veterans out there that the Seahawks let go that they have openly talked about wanting back. They talked about Ryan Neal that way. He decided to sign with the Buccaneers. Uh, Pete has been adamant that he wants Puna Ford back in particular. His comments have not been thinly veiled at all when it comes to that. And yet the salary cap situation right now is not great. If the draft was today and they had to sign their picks tomorrow, they wouldn't have the money to do it. Do you believe from what you've been told, what you can gather, or even just gut feeling and your knowledge of how the team operates, that they already know? Because we've talked about all the ways they can clear cap space. That's well documented. Do you think they already know or maybe have made those arrangements that they're confident that they can still add pieces they need to? Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't have any insight on specific moves that the Seahawks have planned, but I do think, and it's interesting, this is all speculation at this point, but, and, and Mike Clay of ESPN tweeted about this, and I did a little bit of digging, asking some people that are in my context about this, and I don't know that it happens, but Noah Fant, that contract, hmm. you're talking almost $7 million in fully guaranteed money on a fifth-year option, and I think in a perfect world, the Seahawks would like to hang on to him because he's a former first-round pick. He's a young tight end. He and Geno started to really click the second half of the season last year. And so there's a lot of reasons you want to hang on to him. But if you're not going to get an extension done right now that's going to lower that cap hit, right now that is the best player on their roster to get immediate cap relief by trading him. You can't cut him because he's got a fully guaranteed contract. You're still going to have to eat dead money there. Mm. But if you could get a team to give you a sixth or seventh round pick, I know that doesn't sound great, but this is a phenomenal tight end draft class. And you've got maybe two or three legitimate first round talents in that position group this year. So if there's a time where you can make a trade like this and feel pretty confident you can find a good replacement for him in the draft, it would be this year. And so I don't know that that happens, Dan, but – I would not be surprised at all if John Schneider is trying to call around a little bit and see if there might be some interest in Noah Fant. Not because they want to do that, but we haven't seen any movement on extensions. From what I've been told, there's been nothing with Uchenna Nuosu, for example. Mm. So if they're not going to be making those type of moves, John Schneider is very anti-reconstructing, uh, restructuring contracts. So I don't see them doing that, especially with Adams or Diggs being high-priced safeties. They don't want to push even more money down the road with those guys. 
So to me, the the fans situation seems like a natural option for them to look at that they can create almost seven million in cap space and instantly they're in position they could sign a free agent or two and their rookie draft class just for clarification you, you mentioned Diggs and adams um and there's an opportunity there to do a simple uh conversion where they could take some of their salary from this year convert it to a bonus and and that does affect them in later years it adds money to the prorated signing bonus yep. that the, they're then responsible for and you you mentioned that schneider doesn't typically like to do that but if he has to is um, he doesn't have to have the player's approval to do that. Is no. that correct? Because mm-hmm. I know this came up with Russell Wilson. There was one year, there was some speculation about that. They can just choose to do that, right? Yeah, that's something that John Schneider in the front office can do without player permission. Okay. And those guys are still getting paid. They're yeah. still going to get the same amount of money. Yeah. It just changes up the way that the contract is structured. And honestly, Dan, if if they were going to go that route, and again, John Schneider only does that when it's a last resort. Mm-hmm. That's what history shows. He is That's not how he operates. He is anti-New Orleans Saints style. We are not going to be pushing cap down the road year after year. But Tyler Lockett would be the name that actually makes the most sense for me. Because, yeah, you're talking about a $3 million addition to his cap hit next year, but he's been durable. He has been reliable yeah. year in, year out. I think he's still got two or three really good seasons left in him minimum in the NFL, the way he takes care of his body, the way that he plays the game. So if there's a player where you're like, look, he's going to be on the roster, we know that. We might even extend him another year or two down the road. That's the guy that you kick the money down the road, and then you could maybe offset that but with an extension down the road. I don't know that they'd be feeling that way about either one of their safeties. We especially think that with Jamal Adams, with right. all the injuries he's had. And if you restructure his contract, it's going to be tougher to move on from him next year, or it's going to be more expensive to move on if you decide to do that. Let's get into the draft. And I want to start with this. I, I feel like there's this growing sentiment, at least I've had uh, a lot more conversations with fans over the last week, where there's a lot of guys in this draft, really, um, really highly thought of, highly rated prospects in this draft that are older than we're used to seeing guys coming out in the draft. And and there's reasons for it. There's legitimate reasons for it. This is really, I think, the culmination or the peak anyway of uh, seeing a bunch of guys come out that took advantage of the extra COVID year and yep. stayed in school for a fifth year, sometimes a sixth year in some of these cases, um, or some of these guys transferred. And, and so they stayed in school another year to, to try to raise their stock. Um, guys that are 24, 25, 26 years old, some examples, Keon White is 24. Uh, John Michael Schmitz, who fans like, is almost 25, will be 25 when the season starts. In fact, I think he turns 25 on the 13th. Uh, Hendon Hooker's 25. Byron Young, who visited the Seahawks this week on one of their top 30 visits, a really dynamic edge rusher out of Tennessee, in five days will be 26 years old. A lot of fans hate that and don't want to touch these guys. And there's this perception that they're somehow damaged goods or you shouldn't, you should stay away from them. What's your general thought on some of these good prospects that could help the team, but that might be older coming out? I think this really goes down to position. Like if we're talking about a 25 year old running back, you know, I'm going to surprise some people saying this, but the shelf life is already short anyway. They're typically only going to be playing three, four years, maybe. So they're still in the prime of their career. I'm fine with bringing a guy like that in later in the draft as a running back offensive line. These guys can play into their mid thirties at a high level. So I wouldn't be worried about John Michael Schmitz. Now, if you're talking about a, twitchy pass rusher like a Byron Young already being 26. 
I'm starting to hesitate a little bit because what's he going to look like three or four years from now when he's getting to 30 years old and maybe he starts losing this step. And so I think it really depends on the position. Like quarterback, Hendon Hooker coming off an injury is a bigger concern to me than his age. Like he could be a stud quarterback into his late 30s. So that's you're looking at more than a decade of him being your quarterback. So I don't necessarily think that it, you know, eliminates the possibility of a team like the Seahawks drafting a quality player. But I do think you have to consider position and you have to consider what makes that player a talented player. If it's somebody that wins with athleticism and they're 26, then I'd be a lot more worried than if it's somebody that's a technician or is physically strong. Those are traits that are going to last longer in the NFL. So I think you have to consider all those things and it doesn't just boil down to, Oh, you're 24, you're 25, you're off my board. Yeah. You can't operate that way. Young's an interesting one. Cause I, the tape is really, really fun. And, oh, yeah. and he certainly fits the scheme and he can help. But I guess it all comes down to value with him. If he's there in the fifth round with one of those extra picks they have, and it's only a three-year deal, then maybe he's a one-contract player and you feel like it's worth the risk at that point if he can contribute right Think away. Think about it, Dan. How many day three guys get a second contract exactly. anyway? Yeah. So if you can get a guy like him who's probably got second round, maybe borderline first round talent, but you can get him in the fourth or fifth round yeah. for that money, peanuts, yeah, you take that. If you're like, hey, he might not be here past his first contract, but I can get four great seasons from him. Right. Then it's totally worth it. Okay. Let's talk about number five. Uh, that's where all the focus is for fans. Uh, the Seahawks haven't drafted this high in the Schneider Carroll regime. They haven't drafted this high and it's since since they took Aaron Curry. What was that? Two thousand eight. Two thousand nine. Um, Two thousand nine. Jim Moore a the year. Jim Moore a year. Let's not talk about that. Uh, what. As we're as we stand less than three weeks away from the draft now, um, you know we've analyzed this thing to death. It it's 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 been boiled down. You know the group of names that we all talk about now has been solidified. What's your current gut feeling? If you had to pick today, if the draft was today, which way do you think they're leaning? I think it's Will Anderson or Tyree Wilson, whoever is there at number five. Now, if Anthony Richardson's there, I think that that creates a different dynamic, but I am 99.9% sure Anthony Richardson is not there at number five. In fact, I would lean there's a better chance that he's pick number one than him going to pick five. Mm. So I think that it really boils down to the top defenders there. And I think one of those guys is going to be there. I am of the belief that Jalen Carter is not going to be on their board at pick number five. Now, don't put me to it if they trade down, because if it's less money, which that would be the case if they traded down to nine or 10 or 11 with one of those teams, it's a smaller financial amount. And if he's still there, I think John Schneider at that point might revisit the possibility. But I think they're going to be looking at the high character guys at number five that are also blue chippers. And I'm just going to say this. I've noticed some real resentment the last week or so from Seahawks fans about Tyree Wilson, and I do not get it. Like, I understand the foot concern, but he just got cleared. And from what I was told, he maybe could have done stuff a couple weeks ago, but they were just being cautious. Like, he's being smart. Yeah. And his doctor's being smart. And yes, he's not the twitchiest pass rusher, but the guy can be physically dominant driving guys back. And he's still an unpolished piece. Like you, you teach him some technique stuff and counters and he's a plus athlete at six, five two seventy. Like don't think he's an athletic slouch. He's yeah. got really good quickness, can rock it inside. He can play with his hand in the dirt. So 
I'm just making the argument for 12s out there that are saying it's Will Anderson or Buss. Like Tyree Wilson is a damn good football player. And if you can get him at number five, he's to me a scheme flexible player. And if you wanted to, if you wanted him to be a three tech, you could say, hey, we're going to get you up to 285 with that 6'5 frame and he could be a monster. He can play off the edge at 270 and be a monster. Like, And he can drop back in coverage a little bit. I've watched him do it. So those two, to me, are the top candidates at that pick. And if you're looking for a wild card, I'm going to throw one name out there. Devin Witherspoon is my wild mm. card. And I know they haven't picked a corner in the first three rounds or first two rounds in their entire time here. But Devin Witherspoon screams Seahawks. Just, just he watch a, his yeah. He has that unique play he's style. Pesky, he's competitive. Yeah. He's physical. Mm. Comes up and mashes people. And teams didn't throw the ball at him because they were scared of him. The guy, and you can't say that about Christian Gonzalez. Teams tried to test him. Devin Witherspoon teams are like, you know what? I'm staying the hell away from him. So number five overall might seem rich for corner. It's not the biggest need in the team. But Devin Witherspoon and Tariq Woolen together, you know, if you're looking best player available, that would be a guy I think you could justify number five for. It's interesting. I was having this debate the last couple of days because I because I talked about maybe a corner at five and and uh, and you've seen it, you've heard it. I'm sure that fans come back and they they've never taken a guy above ninety. They've never take they'll never take a guy that high. Well, how do you know? Because they've never had a chance to. Like they've, they would have taken Sauce Gardner last yeah, year if they had a chance. They've never had access to to yeah. that part of the the cornerback class. Interesting. You touched on a couple of things. Um, that I'm fascinated about something you just said about Tyree Wilson, because I was going to ask you this as a follow-up question, but first I'm with you on Jalen Carter. I go back and forth mostly because I've tried to talk myself into the idea that maybe they could still take him because it's unfortunate the way things have gone, but he would be, if all things were, I were in a perfect world, he'd be, he'd be the ideal pick. In fact, but I guess in a perfect world, he wouldn't be there at five. And it's not the care. It's not the off field stuff. It's, it's, well, I mean, it's not the legal stuff. It's just the, does he love football enough? And is he passionate enough about the game to work at it to be great? And I, I think that's the question that the Seahawks lean on the most. My question about Tyree Wilson, I was going to ask you, do you see from all the tape you've watched, do you think he can add weight to that frame? Because the biggest hesitation I think fans have is, He's he's too big and lanky and not twitchy enough to use your word to play, you know, outside linebacker, but he's not big enough at 270 and 6'6 to play traditional 3-4 defensive end. But can he add 15 pounds? Can he be that guy? And you touched on it. Yeah, he absolutely can add that weight. I'm not necessarily saying that that's the route I would go, though, because I do not agree with the idea he's not twitchy enough to play outside linebacker mm-hmm. because just because he is not Will Anderson in terms of explosiveness and burst, there's still more than enough quality tape where you can see he's a different style player. He's going to win more with power than what Will Anderson's going to. And guys like that can still be dominant in the NFL, rushing off the edge. And the other thing you got to love about him, both those guys are really good run defenders. They yeah. set the edge. They set firm anchors. They're really tough to push around. Wilson actually, when he doesn't play too upright, and that's not a huge problem for him, but when he plays with good leverage, he's really hard to move. Hmm. And so we know how bad this run defense was last year. Indeed. I think him and Uchenna Nwosu together and Boye Mafe rotating, Daryl Taylor rotating, like that is a potentially top five upside edge rushing group with run defense ability too. So I get it. It's not the biggest need on the team, but I, I'm viewing this. You're getting a blue chip player. 
And I think the Seahawks will be viewing this too. Tyree Wilson is a blue chip talent. He's just a different type of player than Will Anderson. And I think Will Anderson is a better prospect, but they're both top five caliber players. Daniel Jeremiah just had him at number four on his latest top 50. Um, He agrees with you. Uh, (laughs) Give me your thoughts on this. So John Schneider, uh, he's doing a weekly radio show now on Seattle yep. on Seattle 710 here locally, which I love because usually this time of year he is invisible. Um, I love listening to his inside, even though he you know, obviously tries to be guarded. But he called into the show the other day from a, from a location that he would not disclose because he was doing a private workout and he wouldn't say where he was calling from. And someone suggested it might have been Lubbock. And you just said Wilson has been cleared from the foot injury. Yes, he has been. Okay. Is that, is that where you think? So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that's where he was, but I would not be shocked if that's where he was. (laughs) Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next? Last forever. The Stanley Cup final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. <laughs> um, okay, let's talk about 20 because this to me seems to be the biggest mystery of the draft for the Seahawks. Because when you look at that portion of the first round, you look at all the mocks and the big boards, first of all, it's universally agreed in this draft that there might only be 15 ish first round grades for most teams. So you're getting into that area where you know, if you go for need, if you get a player that you think isn't going to last till 37, so maybe you push to get him at 20 or you think about trading down. But the the group of positional value at 20 is all over the board. And it it's really easy to piss off Seahawk fans by taking a tight end there or a receiver. Um, God forbid a running back. Don't get me started on tight ends. I've gotten so much <laughs> wrath from people for the last mock draft that I did. That well, and time. I do too. And it's, but it's all because I think most fans and God love them, but they, they focus on today and they only see what's in front of them. And they don't care that Will Disley's the only tight end signed for 2024. They just don't see it as a need. And you hear that all the time. Don't need one. Don't need one. I'll take a corner sometimes at 20 because a guy falls and it's just great positional value. Don't need one. Don't need one. What, do you think that that's kind of an opportunity for the for the biggest curveball that they might throw at us? Yeah, I think that that is truly the wild card spot at number 20 because, again, you are in that gray area where I've got 19 players with first-round grades on my big board. So you are right in that spot where maybe one of those guys ends up being available there. But I think John Schneider, he has learned from what happened with the LJ Collier draft pick mm-hmm. because – that was the one time and I was not in the draft room or the post press conference there, but I remember watching that and just the mood for Pete Carroll and John Schneider, two guys, especially Carroll, who's normally super enthusiastic. You could just tell yeah. that the wind was out of their sails. Yeah. And that was weird. That is a pick that they made that if you look back, I think that if they had a chance to redo that one, not just because of the way Collier played, which obviously he didn't play much the last couple of years because he wasn't good enough for them, but they reached and Schneider emphasized that at the combine, that we are not going to be just filling a need just to fill a need. 
And so I look at pick 20 and that is truly the best player available position, which is why I have picked Michael Mayer a couple of times in mock drafts because mm-hmm. Michael Meyer, my, Michael Mayer, in my opinion is the best tight end in this class. And I know there's a couple other really good ones, but you watch the Notre Dame tape and this guy is just a stud. Geno Smith would be thrilled to have Michael Mayer to throw the football to eat up the middle of the field. And you know, two other guys that would be really happy about his arrival DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, Mm. because when you get a tight end that can do that kind of damage, it opens everything else up in the passing game. And so I could see another receiver, maybe if Jackson Smith and Jigba still there, I don't think he'll be there at that point, but there's other receivers. Zay Flowers is one of my favorites. I think he goes in round one. I see a lot of Tyler Lockett in his game. You could pick somebody like that. You could pick a corner. I think this is also a position where you are willing to take a gamble on a guy that has incredible athletic traits and might not be necessarily viewed as a first round pick like a Nolan Smith or mm-hmm. at a Tommy at a borrower from Northwestern. Mm-hmm. Those kind of guys that are freak off the charts athletes and have had some good production, but haven't necessarily been dominant at the college level. Those are players that you reach for, so to speak, because of those traits You don't reach for somebody like an LJ Collier that never had the physical tools that jumped off the tape and was an older prospect to go with that. And so I think Seattle's learned from that. Those are the kind of guys they're going to be looking for, but it leaves everything wide open. And I wouldn't even be shocked if they went with somebody like a Hendon Hooker at number 20 overall. Hmm. If they fall in love with him, that might be the position where he ends up going. He could be the fifth quarterback that goes in the first round. Is he? Do you have any indication of when he'll be cleared to throw or work out for teams at all? As far as I know, he can he can stand and throw right now. Uh, he just can't like take snaps and drop back and okay. do all that stuff. But from what I have been told, he is expected to be fully cleared, ready to go by the start of training camp. He might be able to start doing some movement stuff during OTAs, things like that. But I think the teams will feel fairly confident about his position from that standpoint. And. I think if you're looking for a guy to learn from Geno Smith, like there's no quarterback in this draft class from top to bottom in terms of size, traits, strengths that matches up with Geno Smith like Hedden Hooker does. And so putting a guy that's got that high completion rate, doesn't turn the football over, putting him with Geno, that would be a really interesting setup. And if you pick him there, it doesn't necessarily mean that he has to be our guy in the next couple of years either. You have that flexibility at that spot and with Gino under contract for three years. Yeah. Then we get into day two, and I think that's the meat of this draft. For for what this draft lacks as far as elite top end talent uh, in the top 10, yeah. um, there's some, you know, a lot of questions about the top 10 to 15. Day two, there's a lot of depth and a lot of balance. I don't think there's a lot of difference between guys that are going to be available at the top of the second round and guys that are going to be available in the third round. Um, who are some of your favorite uh, potential Seahawk fits uh, day two targets? Well, we got to start on the defensive side of the ball because that's sure. where the Seahawks need the most help. And this is another reason why I have argued best player available in round one. That could mean a tight end. That could mean a receiver. Heck, that could mean a guard. If, if somebody like Osiris Torrance is really high on your board, you could pick him at 20. The reason I've been saying that that's totally fine is Seattle's got three picks in the second and third round. And I do agree with you. This is where the meat of the draft is. Tons of depth. You can go after edges here. Um, you could go after Uzama, the uh, edge from Kansas State. He is one of my favorites in this class. If you didn't pick an edge in the first round, that's a guy you could bring in that – 
He's got some room to grow as a run defender, but I don't think he is flawed necessarily in that area. And he's in a dynamic pass rusher. McDonald's another one from Iowa State that could be on, in play. And then defensive tackle, I am a huge Siaki Ika fan from Baylor, not just because he's a massive human being, but the guy had four and a half sacks two years ago. Like, he is not just a space eater at the nose tackle position. I would pick him as early as 37 overall. He's that kind of talent. We don't see nose tackles get picked that early, but he's a guy that can rush the passer some, and good luck running at him. He is just a massive human being, his own orbit on the field. So him at 37, if we're looking at a little smaller guys that can play nose, Keanu Benton is probably my favorite of the group because yeah. he's another player that's really taken a big step forward the last couple of years as a pass rusher. He's always been a stout run defender. He can play across the board. He can play 4-3. He can play 3-4. Mozzie Smith is another one that I really like. I don't think he's got the pass rushing tools, though. Hmm. It's weird because he's a better athlete than Ika is, but I just haven't seen on film the consistency rushing the passer, but he's another one that good luck running the football at him in the middle of your defense. So those guys would make sense. And then my draft crush for this group, Jack Campbell from Iowa. I know you brought back Bobby Wagner and you signed Devin Bush, but they're both on one year deals. Jordan Brooks is coming back from an ACL tear. That is still a position where you need a long-term answer. Jack Campbell is a guy that could come in and push for starting reps right away. And he's another one by pick 37 that I would be making a pick on because he's 245 pounds. He's a traditional built linebacker for a three, four. He can move, might not have had the fastest 40, but it was still good enough. And he had great change of direction uh, testing. And this kid has a high IQ. You put him in the middle of your defense. He could be a green dot wearer immediately in your defense. I just think that he is a fantastic football player that, somehow is still kind of hovering a little bit under the radar. I could see him going in the first round. He's that kind of a player, though. Dynamic, can make plays in coverage, can blitz. He can do it all. He's a very good football player. Henley would probably be the next linebacker on my list. I have a few more concerns about his size. He's not as big as Campbell. I wonder how he would hold up against the run in the NFL, uh, but there's no denying the athletic talent. So that's just defensive players that jump out. There's several corners. This is the deepest corner class that I think I've ever seen. Maybe somebody like Julius Brents is still there in the second round. Can you imagine him and Tariq Woolen in the same secondary with their size, length, and athleticism? I mean, there's a lot of really fun players at safety, J.L. Skinner, I think, would be an awesome addition for the Seahawks because we don't know what Jamal Adams is going to look like. And if yeah. he doesn't return to form or battles more injuries, you need a long-term answer that can play in the box, a strong safety. I like Julian Love, but that's not his game, playing extensive snaps up there. You need a guy like J.L. Skinner who can also play deep safety, can make plays in the football, but he would be a fun one that I don't want to make Cam Chancellor comparisons, but he's kind of a Cam Chancellor light, 6'4" athletic comes up and thumps people can make plays on a football. So he's a player. I think the Seahawks would have a lot of interest in. They met him at the combine. So that's just defense on the offensive side of the ball. Head uh, hooker would be the quarterback. If he's still there, I think there's a huge drop off after those first five guys to the yeah, rest of the sure. QBs that are out there running back. There's a ton of talented players. Maybe Jameer Gibbs is still there in the mm-hmm. second round. Could be somebody to consider putting with uh, Ken Walker, the third several other running backs in this class or receivers, maybe somebody like Hyatt from Tennessee falls. Could you imagine putting that speed with DK and Tyler Lockett in the same receiving core Uh, downs from North Carolina is a stud and slot really fast can create yards after the catch. 
would be what they thought D. Eskridge was going to be. Tight end, maybe Washington falls in the second round. Sam Laporta from Iowa is a really good football player. And we know there's another Iowa tight end in the division that's pretty darn good. So yeah. I can keep going. I mean, there there's so much talent in this class. And as you mentioned, it is maybe lacking the superstar appeal at the beginning. But in terms of day two talent, guys that can be instant difference makers and could end up being Pro Bowl, maybe all pro caliber players, this class is loaded at a lot of positions. It, it is to the point that I've tried to do mock drafts and intentionally pick players that I wouldn't be happy with. And it's, <laughs> it's kind of hard to do. Like there's just so much depth in so many different directions they can go. I think I can do that. I, and that, I've, well, I've that's had a where, few mock drafts where like, oh, that guy's still there. That's there's where I'm reason. leading. Yeah. So we've talked about, so Jack Campbell's your Vontae Mack, right? You're no matter what. Um, little yep. draft day movie reference there. Uh, who are some guys that, that you just personally don't like, but you, you think the Seahawks might, that they might hold some appeal to the Seahawks and you're nervous. They might take him cause you just don't like him. Well, this list, there's one, a, and it's the same player. And then there's a large gap because to me, Will Levis has a lot of things. The Seahawks would be very intrigued by. Yeah. He's big. He's got a cannon arm. He's very athletic. There are the, jaw-dropping throws that he makes that you're like, whoa, that guy could be a stud at the next level. And the problem is if you're watching the tape from start to finish, those plays are sprinkled in there. And then there's so many, Dan, honestly, I'm glad I don't have hair to pull out on my head because I've tried (laughs) to watch Kentucky games live. And that's the last two years, not just this past year where he had a lot different offensive line in front of him that wasn't near as good. Yeah. Not as many weapons. He lost his NFL offensive coordinator. Like, yes, there were factors there that led to his decline. He was dealing with an injury too, but he just makes some hair, just mind numbing throws into double and triple coverage. And he tries to throw off his back foot. He does stuff that just really scares me Mm. evaluating quarterbacks And the right coaching staff with him, and this is maybe where Seattle's viewing this. He's got the traits. We don't have to play him right away. We can coach this kid up, and he can end up being a stud. I think that it's possible, but he would scare me a ton. If he fell to, like, 20, then I would have strong consideration picking him because of his physical tools, and I'd feel more willing to take the risk there. But I'm definitely not taking him in the top 10. That, that's just my opinion. I think Anthony Richardson has shown a lot more ability to go through his progressions and make smart decisions mm-hmm. with the football, navigate the pocket. I don't see that from Will Levis. I see occasional wow throws or runs, and then I see a bunch of cluster plays. And I'm like, this guy doesn't look ready for the NFL to me. So he would be number one on yeah. my list in terms of prospects that I could see Seattle liking that would scare me. And then I would put Joey Porter Jr. as the second one. Hmm. Okay. He's got physical tools and obviously a great athlete. He's got super long arms. I mean, there are things that check off for the Seahawks. But when I went back and watched Penn State tape, I don't see a guy that can consistently make plays on the football. He's not going to – to an extent reminds me of Shaquille Griffin with the inability to convert pass breakups or potential pass breakups into interceptions. And – I see a guy that doesn't necessarily move well in and out of his breaks. I just, I don't see a guy that's a top 15 pick in my opinion. 
But I could see Seattle potentially being enamored by him because he's got those long arms. He's got the pedigree with his dad being a stud NFL player. He's coming from a school that kicks out good NFL players. So I could see Seattle liking him a lot, and maybe he's that corner they pick early. I just am not as high on him because I haven't seen the ball skills, and I do see some Shaquille Griffin. And Griffin's a fine player, yeah. but I don't see a first-round caliber guy that's going to make the impact turnovers that you're looking for at that position. So that would be one in offense and one in defense that have been kicked around as top 15 picks that I could see Seattle liking that I personally am not big fans of. See, it's interesting you mentioned Porter because my guy, at a little bit later in the draft, he's fallen. You know, at the beginning of the draft process, he was rated much higher. But that that guy for me is Keely Ringo. Um, and I know the Seahawks met with him, and that made me nervous because I just see a guy that's all traits, and he and he looks rocked up, and he's got you know he's six two, and he and he fits all those threshold measurements. I just don't see an instinctive player at all with a feel for the game, yeah. and and um, so I'd be a little nervous. You tend to defer. You, you want to defer, like. Uh, you know, hey, uh, and I've gone back and forth on Levis, talked about him at length on on the show a couple of days ago as a guy that I can see him appealing to Schneider. And I made the the Josh Allen comparison, and we know Schneider liked him. And you want to defer, like, okay. And I'm sure you'll talk yourself into this. If he's the pick at five, okay, maybe Schneider feels I'm going to have a really hard time talking him. myself into it if they pick him <laughs> at five. I, because I just, you mentioned the Josh Allen comparison. Yeah. Here's the difference. I know Will Levis was not playing with the best talent he's played with last year, but he still had SEC talent around him. Josh Allen was throwing to one stars that were never going to have a chance to play in the NFL. And those guys were not getting open. They were dropping passes. Like I just don't see that in Will Levis's tape. I see a kid that doesn't have great pocket presence. I thought Josh Allen had decent pocket presence, just didn't have anything around him. And the decision-making, yeah, the accuracy percentage wasn't where you wanted, but I didn't see near as many no, 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 yes throws from him where Will Levis, it's like every dang possession, there's yeah. one or two of them, it feels like. So I guess that's, that's just my opinion. And again, there's people that disagree with me, and that's fine. You know, I've I've missed on draft picks plenty of times. He just scares me uh, with his decision-making stuff. That that really bothers me. Well, now so. I'm going to be nervous for you when we're when we're on the clock. <laughs> if they pick him, like, look, oh, I get the traits. Like I, I said, I understand the traits, and John Schneider's got a great track record with quarterbacks. If he thinks he's good, then yeah. you know, give him the benefit of the doubt. He he just scares me. I want to ask you this, and we'll end on this because I know I got to let you, let you go. But um, you talked uh, recently. You wrote a piece about. Um, John Schneider's history of, of moving around the draft and, and he was known, you know, he had a real reputation there for a long time of moving down in the draft, but there've been some key moments where he's moved up. And I, and I was going to ask you about this when we talked about pick 20, if there's only 15 or 16 first round grades and there's a guy that they want, they have the, the pick ammunition to, to move up or they could move up, move around in the second round and the third round. And you broke down his history recently. You were tweeting about this, I think yesterday that his track record trading down and the players he ended up with, not great, but he's, when he trades up for a guy, he's usually right. Yeah. Just look at the history trading up. He has done it eight times and no, I, I get it. John or and Stephen uh, Sullivan were trade ups. You traded a year yeah. up to get him, but no, I'm not counting them. Those, those are different types That's a seventh of trades. Round. Yeah. That's crap. Those trade. are guys you just were hoping you could get in seventh round because you didn't think they were going to sign with you as free agents. Right. Like it, it's a different game. So there have been eight trade-ups by John Schneider in the first six rounds. The two worst ones I still think are hits. 
Stone Forsythe as a sixth rounder has played well when he's had his opportunities. He's just not going to play without injuries, but that's fine. He's a good swing tackle. That's good value for a sixth round pick. Cody Barton, whether you loved him or hate him last year, had a solid year as a starter, and he was a really good special teams player, spot starter for three years before that. Third round picks don't have a high hit rate. So to me, both of those were solid hits. And the fact another team wanted Cody Barton quickly, the way that it happened, teams view him a certain way. So I think they hit on both those picks. The other ones that they had trading up, Jaron Reed, Daryl Taylor, Tyler Lockett, DK Metcalf, Mm -hmm. Michael Dixon. That's just five of the other ones that they traded up for. And even Daryl Taylor with the run defense issues had almost 10 sacks last year. He's been a pretty solid addition pass rushing wise. Lockett and Metcalf have been all pro pro bowl caliber players. Dixon has been an all pro and a pro bowl caliber punter his entire time in Seattle. And Jaron Reed, there was a couple of times I thought he should have been a pro bowler and he didn't get in. He's had a really good NFL career. So Schneider has hit it out of the park when he has traded up eight for eight in that regard, in my opinion, hundred percent hit rate hmm. on the trade downs. You can maybe say three or four of them worked out. Bruce Irvin was a hit too, but They've only gotten two pro bowlers out of it. Bobby Wagner, Richard Sherman, obviously outstanding players, but we're talking 25 trade downs since 2010 and you got two pro bowlers out of them. So I guess this, this is what I said on the podcast yesterday, Dan, and maybe you will disagree with me on this. I've really changed my opinion on the trade down strategy. I used to be like, yeah, stockpile, get your lottery picks, get extra lottery picks. Now I feel like, yes, there's reason to do it sometimes, but I feel like more times than not, John Schneider has taken a lottery pick that has a much better chance of netting big money, and he's lit it on fire to get much <laughs> riskier lottery picks at a cheaper yeah. cost. Yeah. And so I just I th- I'm not saying that you should trade up more because it's something that's got to be the right timing to do to justify. But I also think just trading down for the sake of trading down is an effective strategy. And this is a record with a lot of instances that did not work out. And we remember what happened with Malik McDowell. That would be my other thing. Mm -hmm. If you're going to trade down, don't perpetually do it. They traded down three times in that draft before they picked Malik McDowell. They did that with Marquise Blair, too, in a draft. I mean, it has not worked out. Paul Richardson, none of those guys became the players the Seahawks thought they were going to be or even close to that. And they traded down multiple times like at some point, you just got to take the best player available to improve your roster instead of, hey, let me see if I can get a fifth-round pick. Okay, cool. That, that's just my viewpoint of it at this point. I'm with you. And I do think some of that was necessity because we dealt away draft picks and he was trying to trying to add more to the coffers. I think this year is unique. It's different. And I would, I would be happiest if he just lets the draft come to him this year, yeah. um, whether, whether he uses all 10 picks or maybe moves up once or twice. Um, I could see that happening, but I'm with you. Uh, just just take the best damn player. And I think we saw that last year and he's talked about how they kind of shifted how they how they view the draft and how they approach the draft. And, and hopefully we'll see that again this year. Um, Corbin, thanks. Thanks for your time and your insight. As always, uh, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast daily Monday through Friday. What are you working on for the show this week? Rob Rang and I are going to be doing our final mock draft on Monday. So listeners are going to be excited about that. Uh, Rob and I always wait till two weeks beforehand because one week ahead of time, uh, there's really nothing else that needs to be said at that point. All the pro days and everything will be wrapped up. So Monday we'll be kicking our uh, 
post-draft or, or pre-draft uh, festivities into full gear with our mock draft. Well, it'll be mock draft Monday all around. Michael Thompson will be joining me on the show. We're going to do a live mock draft together and see how that works out. Um, less than three weeks to go until the draft. A lot can happen and uh, can't wait until that day gets here. Can't get here soon enough. You know, we've, you, I know you probably feel like me. You've done all the analysis. Let's just, let's just get on with it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's just get it here. Can we hit? Let's uh, get Deuce Vaughn in a Seahawks uh, uniform here in the next couple weeks. Let's just get it done. Can we hit the fast forward button already? Um, uh, just a reminder that during the first first round of the draft, I'll be live streaming the entire thing. So uh, keep your eye out for that. You can follow Corbin at Corbin Smith NFL on Twitter. Follow me at Seahawks forever. Uh, we'll see you on Monday with Michael Thompson. Little mock draft Monday. And uh, thanks again, Corbin. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. Thanks for listening. See you soon. 